Welcome to the Global Governance Podcast, where we explore the future of governance. Each episode will look at a different global issue and how governance plays a key role in its solution. From climate change to gender equality, from corruption to peace and security, we invite experts to explore a thought-provoking game of what if and why not, positing a world in much closer international cooperation. And now your host, Augusto Lopez Claros. Enjoy. Andrew Strauss is Dean and Professor of Law at the University of Dayton School of Law. He specializes in international law and has written extensively on global governance. He taught on the law faculties of the National University of Singapore, the Delaware Law School, Rogers Law School, and Notre Dame Law School. He was a visitor at the European Peace University, served as a Fulbright Scholar in Ecuador, and has delivered the Henry Usborne Memorial Lecture in the British Houses of Parliament. He's a graduate of Princeton University School of Public and International Affairs and New York University School of Law. Thank you, Andrew, for taking the time to speak to us. It's really a pleasure to have you today. I want to start this conversation by pointing out, for the benefit of our listeners, that you recently co-authored with Richard Falk a paper entitled Toward Global Parliament, an Affirming Reassessment After 22 Years. This article is actually part of an upcoming book, which uh, I co-edited with Richard Falk, um, titled Global Governance and International Cooperation, Managing Global Catastrophic Risks in the 21st Century, to be published in early 2024. In this paper, you reassess your proposal for the creation of a global parliament, which was originally presented in 2001 in a famous article in the journal Foreign Affairs. So to get started on this this podcast, for our listeners, can I ask you to momentarily go back to that original proposal of 22 years ago? and share its key outlines and the arguments you put forward at that time. How did the geopolitical climate then, and in particular I'm referring to the seeming possibility of a convergence of democratization and globalization, how did that make the proposal for a global parliament a political possibility? Yes, thanks very much, Augusto, and uh, thanks for uh, for the introduction and, and for having me uh, today. I, I am really very uh, pleased to be here. Um, so it, in answer to the question, at, at that period, uh, just to elucidate a little bit on, on the premise that you were that you were suggesting, there were these really large, very prominent twin trends of democratization at the national level. And some people refer to it as the third wave of democratization. It had really started uh, in the 70s in Southern Europe, Spain and Portugal had expanded uh, in the 80s. Uh, We saw East Asian democracies beginning to flourish and Latin American democracies beginning to, to democratization beginning to accelerate. And then, of course, in the 1990s, with the fall of the Soviet Union and the end of the Cold War, 
all of the democracies in in Eastern Europe and of course Africa began to accelerate as well. And at the same time, we were also seeing a very strong trend towards globalization. Uh, the European Union actually came into existence. It had been going back to the immediate post-war period, uh, a fairly weak uh, uh, free trade area and had gradually become uh, more and more integrated and that really accelerated in that period in the 1990s. We had for the first time um, the World Trade Organization, uh, NAFTA, the Security Council following the first Gulf War began to work really for the first time in its history uh, in something akin to the way it was originally designed. And so you have these very, very prominent trends, which looked actually at the time to be fairly durable towards more and more democratization of countries and more and more global decision making, more and more integration of the global economy. And it seemed uh, in the original foreign affairs article to Richard and I, like if these two trends were to continue, that at some point the trend lines would have to intersect, that it didn't make sense that you could say that democracy was a sine qua non for legitimate governance at the local level, at the regional level, at the national level, and completely ignore it at the international level if the international level was to become much more important. And so that was the premise, really, of, of our point of departure and everything else that we wrote is how do we bring these two trend lines together and create democratization at the global level, given what was transpiring at that period of time. Needless to say, things didn't quite work out as, as those two lines didn't continue to accelerate. Now, thank you. Thank you, Andrew, for that sort of that background on the on the past several decades. Now, let's come to the present and tell us what has changed and why you are convinced that despite a very different, different geopolitical context today and a much changed sort of economic landscape from the beginning of the, of the century, the idea of establishing a global parliament remains relevant and would be a very important innovation to our existing global governance architecture. Yeah, thanks for that that question. I think, Augusto, my strong sense is, is that it's even more relevant. Uh, perhaps it's more challenging today than it was when we were writing in the 1990s and, and early 2000s, but it's even more relevant today. I mean, the core problems that plagued us then seem even more pressing now. If we look at the challenge of nuclear weapons, uh, we're even closer now to a potential nuclear catastrophe, maybe even nuclear apocalypse, than, than we were at that time of democratization. Uh, people like Michael Doyle argued that the trend towards democratization at the time portended a much more peaceful international order. The idea of a global peace that democracies don't likely go to war with each other. Well, as we're seeing more and more authoritarian uh, regimes and sort of the ethos of, of domination taking hold more and more, uh, the kinds of things that are currently happening in Ukraine seem increasingly likely around the planet. Similarly, like with environmental problems, if anything, the challenges of climate change are even more pressing 
we've lost considerable time since that period in seriously coming to terms uh, with, with climate change. The issues of distribution of wealth are in tremendously intense today. So the need to come up with a functional system of governance at the global level a system of governance where uh, decisions can actually be carried out, where decisions can be made in a peaceful way, uh, where decisions can involve all the different stakeholders and be, be uh, deemed legitimate by large percentages of the global population are, if anything, even more pressing than they were at that time. So I think the relevance is, is still there. The, the challenge is, of course, in this very, very difficult political climate to figure out anything that looks like a transition strategy to a more functional system of global governance. Um, thank you, Andrew. Um, let's, little by little, in the next uh, you know, two to three questions, get a little bit into some of the specifics uh, of the proposal. And, and some of the ideas that underpin this, this proposal. And let me begin sort of going back a little bit into the past. In 1947, Albert Einstein wrote an open letter to the United Nations in which he said, and I quote, the method of representation at the United Nations should be considerably modified. The moral authority of the United Nations would be considerably enhanced if the delegates were elected directly by the people, he said. Uh, I, I finished the quote. And I guess he meant instead of being diplomats, in most cases representing the party in power back, back at home. Einstein thought that the democratic legitimacy of the United Nations was a vital principle and that we needed to have a firmer linkage between the organization and the peoples it was meant to serve. Now, my question to you is, in what ways is your proposal aligned, um, you know, in spirit perhaps, you know, with Einstein's recommendation at the time? I think it's, it's uh, very much aligned, uh, which I think is almost a premise of, of the question. I think it's very much aligned with with where Einstein was coming from. He was, as uh, you know, as well known to many of us, he was not only a visionary in, in the sciences and physics, but also in, in terms of, of, of uh, internationalism and, and his views of, of globalism at the time, I think were, were really quite, quite prescient. Um, the idea in particular that you're, you're uh, referencing, Augusto, around having a democratic United Nations and the importance for legitimacy, I think is crucial. And it really does underlie uh, Richard and my proposal. The part of the problem of the global order today is that it is an order of by and for governments rather than of by and for people. And that keeps it a fairly weak order because governments always want to keep the ultimate decision making for themselves. And so it's very hard to constrain them, even if it's overwhelmingly in the international interest. A recalcitrant government uh, can easily say that they're not going to comply. And there's really very few mechanisms for getting them to comply with global norms. If you had a democratically elected body at the global level, if you think about that, it would legitimize that body pretty significantly. 
first of all, the very idea of holding elections would make it something that the press would cover, people would be running for office. The, the process, the ritual of people actually voting would bring the, the grassroots citizenry into an entire process. So once you had an assembly, even if it was envisioned, which I think it would almost have to be as a fairly weak organization initially that wouldn't have binding powers, but initially, even a weak organization would be very much noticed. It would capture the public's imagination. And so the press would cover its proceedings. And right away, you would begin to have uh, different interest groups that would want to sway the assembly to uh, legitimize their own policy preferences, as, as well as corporate, ish, corporate interests, as well as um, um, labor unions. It would really be a magnet for all the different uh, interests that uh, make up civil society to come around and be in the parliament's uh, in the parliament's ambit, and this would then be a very uh, a very convenient forum for the different interests that would all be there as they are in national parliaments to hammer out accommodations with each other and then get the parliament to sort of rubber stamp their interests. And once the parliament agreed on certain things, it would become, uh, there would be a certain legitimacy to those things. And over time, the parliament would be able to champion its own powers. And over time, it's very likely that judges would begin to take seriously, either as, either as formal law or as persuasive norms, the kinds of things that were coming out of the parliament. And you could imagine that this whole process of democratic legitimation would over time make the parliament an extremely important body. And the final thing I would just add about that is it isn't really just speculation on my part that this is the way the process would work. This is essentially what's happened with the European parliament that started as a parliament of, of nations, a parliament that uh, was, was not directly elected by the citizenry. It moved to direct elections in 1979. And over time, it's gotten more and more and more powers and become a much more important lawmaking body. And really, it's, it's sort of a quasi co-equal branch with the European uh, Commission and the European Council today. So we've already seen this trajectory uh, uh, take place. Yes, I, I, I agree, uh, uh, Andrew. I think that the European experience and the transition that the European Parliament made, you know, from the early years in the late 50s uh, into a fully democratic elected body acquiring, um, you know, the capacity to do binding law on all the member countries is, is very relevant. And, and I think it is an example that it is something that can, in principle, be done. It has already worked in, in, in some, some fashion. Um, I, I was impressed uh, when I read your paper uh, by the idea that parliamentarians would be representing the global citizenry, not individual countries. Um, this would allow, as, as, as you said briefly just a few minutes ago, delegates not to vote along strictly national lines, but instead choose to advocate in favor of broader interests on issues that would straddle national boundaries and, and reflect global concerns. Now, it seems to me that at a time when virtually all of the major problems that we face require inter stronger international cooperation, 
I'm captivated by the idea of a body where its members would have incentives to think in terms of the global good rather than narrow national interests, which has, as you know, been historically uh, the, the sort of the, the dr driving force of decision making, and which has, of course, often derailed efforts to tackle global concerns such as such as climate change. What do you think? So I, I couldn't agree more with that, Augusto. I think that you know the architecture really determines a lot about how individuals behave within different institutions. Institutional structures really matter. So. Uh, at a parent-teacher association meeting, uh, people are going to talk about what's in the best interest of that school that they're meeting about. At, at a state legislature, people are going to talk about, in the United States, we have state legislatures, they're going to talk about what's in the best interest of the state. And if you set up a globally democratic system, which is composed directly of citizens, that's going to be the ethos for which people can talk about. Now, of course, there's going to be parochial interests. People are going to be trying to champion their own interests, but they're going to do it within a framework of having to consider all of the other interests that are there within the assembly. And they're going to have to talk about it in terms of what's in the interest of the whole, because they're not going to carry the day just talking about their own parochial interests. And I think even more than in national governments, because one of the problems right now in national legislatures is, is that dominant groups that can, 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 if they choose to sort of dispense with democratic decision-making, they can be in a position to dominate. So you might think of certain people, you know, Christian nationalists in the United States or Hindu nationalists in India. But at a global parliament, no one group would have anywhere near the ability to do that. Even the largest countries, if all of the Indians voted together or all of the Chinese voted together, they would make up less than 20%. Each country would make up less than 20% of the delegates based on population. So what would happen, and this is, I think, would be tremendously salutary for the planet as a whole, is what would likely happen is what happens in national parliaments all over the world is that liberals from China would team up with liberals from the United States, conservatives from China with conservatives from the United States, and they would vote together, not just along national lines, but they would have certain, certain uh, uh, interests in common, they would have certain worldviews in common, and they wouldn't always necessarily vote together on everything. You could have shifting coalitions, and these would be shifting and unarmed coalitions. And if you sort of tie that together with my, my last answer to the last question, that you could begin to have this parliament become more and more powerful over time and begin to bring civil society and corporate interests, those very constituents that make up the nation states and that the nation states now control, if they began to work together in the ambit of the parliament at the international level, then we could really see an evolution of politics, of democratic politics, to the international system and begin to come up with a way of decision-making that would make everybody more secure, that while they may not win every time, at least they would know that they weren't going to be invaded and they weren't going to, their basic rights weren't going to be taken away and they would have a seat at the table and if they lost, they could come again. And maybe that would give people more security to gradually have uh, a 
demilitarization at the national level if we had an actual model of a better way to do things. So that, I think, is, is what to be hoped. So I, I very much agree with the premise of your question. In the, in the proposal, Andrew, you address sort of negative responses that might arise from, you know, geopolitical powers such as the United States, Russia, and China. And from this, you introduce uh, what I think is a very interesting incremental transition strategy in which, you know, maybe 20, 30 states would agree upon a treaty framework for this body. And then a global parliament might might become an achievable uh, goal, sort of little by little, so to speak. With this, how would you foresee a global parliament's gaining legitimacy international community. Additionally, what would be the role of third party actors? I'm thinking of civil society organizations and how would their interests be represented? Yes, thanks for that question. I think it's such an important question because of course it's easy to sort of envision utopian ideas of the way the world should be. The real question is what is the transition strategy? Can we actually come up with something that in the real world of all the interests, all the divisions, and all the political limitations that we can actually make happen. And I I think that there's not just this 20 to 30 country suggestion of ours, but I think there's other suggestions. And I think we're really at a point where all of these should be on the table and we should be discussing all of them. to, to just sort of explain this idea of 20 to 30 countries a little bit more that you're, you're referencing of ours is the, the idea that countries all over the world would agree to say a treaty to create a global parliament now when many of them aren't democratic and when many of them are just trying to do everything they can to preserve their own national prerogatives seems very unlikely. So that leads us to say, well, if we could get 20 to 30 countries, now they can't all be you know, Western European countries, for example, they have to be economically and geographically diverse so that there is some sort of sense that this is a, an, an incipient global community forming around parliamentarianism. But if we could get 20 to 30 of these countries to agree, as I was suggesting before, to probably a parliament that didn't have very many powers, that would put it in place. And once it was in place, then, as I was suggesting before, it could then grow over time. And it's very likely that if you could get 20 to 30 and it was no longer just a dream, but it was actually existing, that other countries would over time come on board. And hopefully this would be a best practices parliament with all the free and fair elections and things that we come to accept as important to democracy. And so other countries would have to join on its terms. And at a certain point, Uh, very likely there would be a critical mass and you'd have a sort of tipping point where it would be very uncomfortable for countries to stay out of it and not allow their citizens to vote on on the basis of free and fair elections. And then this would be another way of trying to buttress and reinforce democracy writ large, generally both within countries and at the international level. So I think that one can actually see something like this developing in this kind of way and I think there'd be a big role for the other part of your question for civil society, as I was suggesting before, civil society would be in a government of by and a parliament of by and for the people 
civil society as really the grassroots of citizens able to organize themselves could petition this uh, this organization. They could champion different candidates for the parliament and all of the things that they normally do in parliamentary uh, systems. And so they would be real players in in this in this system. I like the idea of creating the right kinds of incentives. Um, I, one can imagine a situation where eventually uh, people would pressure would put pressure on their governments to basically ask the question, uh, are we better in or are we better out? And, and have a kind of a very fruitful consultation and debate nationally on, on that. Um, I want to quote something that, that I found very interesting in your, in your article. Um, uh, you said the following, um, despite a tremendous almost palpable yearning on behalf of tens of millions around the world for a progressive alternative to the dead end offered by ethno-nationalist authoritarianism, current prevailing forms of parliamentarism and internationalism are failing, even in democratic societies, to galvanize the public's imagination." Unquote. I am myself in full agreement with this assessment, but I wanted to give you the opportunity to elaborate a little bit on this on this thought, you know, for the benefit of our audience. Yes, Augusto, thanks for that. I, I, because I think this is such an important point. If we're actually ever to have a global parliament initiated, it can't just be academics or senior civil servants, global international civil servants. It's somehow going to have to capture the imagination of, of the grassroots. There's going to have to be some kind of movement uh, for this, this body, because I do think that governments tend to be conservative in these matters. And uh, in terms of the narrow interests of governments of maximizing their prerogatives, a parliament probably is not something that they would very likely come to. So I, there's going to have to be some sort of political context which is going to allow this to take place. And uh, this is candidly one of the big conundrums is right now in the world that's, that we're living in, the idea of parliaments is not something that, that really makes people's uh, hearts race. Um, people see that politi many politicians are, are venal. They see uh, all of the difficulties of, of parliamentary dysfunction uh, that's happening in a, in a lot of different countries. Um, I guess I'm, you know, just personally uh, sort of, I've always been, uh, in agreement with Winston Churchill's comment about democracy, that it's the worst form of government except for all the others. And as, as messy as it is, it, it's a lot better than having people go to, to resolve disputes through violence, through violating each other's rights. It invites people to the table. It's a way of actually uh, a, a civilized way of coming to make our decisions. And ultimately, we're going to have to have, whether it's at the national level or internationally, some sort of representative democracy. It's just not possible to have 8 billion people all deciding on individual issues. Somehow it has to be worked out in some way that's delegated. These are just practical realities. So I come to the determination that 
that we do need to have something like parliamentarianism at the global level. That doesn't mean that it's an easy sell right now to the citizenry at large. And I would think that, you know, just one more parliamentary body. But what I would say is, is that I firmly believe that there are millions and millions of people around the world that in the depths of their souls do not want to see an authoritarian, authoritarian systems of government spread around the world where it's all just about one group of people dominating another group of people. That in the depth of their souls want to see a way out of the kind of nuclear uh, conflagration that are so potentially possible today that in the depth of their souls want to see a solution to the climate change problem and to the huge problems of huge dis distributional inequities in the world today and that are looking for a vision for all of that. And we also live in a, in a time when the world is very unstable, it's very dynamic. So I really do believe that there are possibilities to begin to appeal to people around a vision which can show a way out of all of that. And a lot of that, I think, is going to depend on finding the right opportunities. There's people such as yourself that are that are working on this. Uh, um, uh, Democracy Without Borders, an organization that's doing excellent work to try and find these opportunities. We haven't found the formula yet, but that doesn't mean that, that it's not there. And there's a tremendous role, I think, for charismatic leadership that can really shift things for the ability to really connect to, the, to these yearnings. And so I think we have to keep trying and, and keep, keep seeing how we can best communicate what I think is just so necessary for our future. Yes, Andrew, I, I, I totally in agreement with, with, uh, with what you said, and I welcome the, the sort of the passion that you bring to this, uh, to this uh, conversation. Um, but this leads me to, to the last question in this podcast, which I think builds a little bit on what you have just said about the yearnings of, of people you know, for a world um, you know, free of the global catastrophic risks which uh, threaten our future today. And I want to quote again from, from your article uh, a somewhat sort of longer, longer few sentences and ask you to to, to elaborate. You said the following, one of the most significant social developments of the last half century has been the widespread emergence of a popular new religious and spiritual orientation does not, that does not fit neatly within traditional religious structures. You continue, this emerging religious and spiritual sensibility lacking the institutional structures of traditional organized religions remains largely politically inchoate. However, should a congenial initiative such as a campaign for a global parliament representing a holistic planetary consciousness sensitive to the practical urgency of human unity successfully tap into it the unlocked power could be potentially explosive. And then you conclude by saying, perhaps it's not too much to hope then that the transformative aftershocks from such from that explosion could come to provide 
an antidote to the worldwide spread of ethno-nationalist authoritarianism. You know, I, I found this, you know, perhaps to be one of the most compelling parts of your, of your paper. Uh, you know, obviously, I very much like the political argument uh, and the emphasis on democracy. But coming back to this last quote, can you elaborate on why this could be a powerful catalyst for global governance reforms? Yes, thank you. And I, I do think that really follows on my, my last uh, answer is ultimately uh, there's all the political science sort of arguments for how we can do a transition and, and create a global parliament from a, a sort of abstract intellectual point of view. Ultimately, most people aren't political scientists, and it has to be something that is going to really motivate them in their core. And I think what we've seen is that on the right, there has been this very strong connection between religious uh, sentiments and political action. And so in a way, it's almost taking a leaf from the page of, of the right that's been using all of this in that way and trying to really tap into this sort of new, as you, as you quoted us, this new emerging religious kind of sentiment. Uh, some people call it being spiritual and not religious. Sometimes it goes by this very imprecise guise of, of new age thinking. Um, it, it's seen in, in the spread of some of the Eastern practices of, of yoga and meditation around the world or indigenous practices of shamanism. There's something there. And, and I think we all know it. It's a little bit sometimes hard to define because it is still as you mentioned in the quote, it is still inchoate, but there's something that's really transforming, and it has to do with an idea of holism, with seeing the planet as a whole, with transcending uh, uh, parochialism. And I, I, because those institutions are not really formed in the way that traditional churches are, it makes it harder to tap into. And they've also been largely not brought into the political realm. A lot of the people that are sort of sympathetic to these ways of seeing things are political in different ways, but on their own. And so is there a way of marrying all of that, of, of, of marrying that towards a vision for the future? And I do think that uh, that it could be absolutely an absolutely catalytical kind of uh, uh, um, process if in fact we could figure out how to bring this together. And this really goes to the answer to the last question is I think this is where we're at, is figuring out how we can bring all of this together to unleash this tremendous energy that I know is out there. And I think it's been, people are very disillusioned because they're watching movements that have a very different orientation towards really bringing the clock back towards uh, previous periods of the 1930s comes to mind where countries are putting up all sorts of barriers against each other and we're seeing much more just nationalistic and dominating ways of making decisions. And there's a tremendous number, perhaps even a significant majority of the population in the world that doesn't want to see that happen. And I believe that if we can figure out how to bring all that together, we have tremendous potential. So um, that's, that's what that was really meant to capture. Thank you for listening to the Global Governance Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with friends and family. 
to learn more, please visit globalgovernanceforum.org and join the conversation. 